Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk. So today we're talking everything tramadol with a very, very special guest that I'm very excited to introduce to you. His name is Dr. David Gerling. So we'll get into Dr. Gerling's CV and, and uh, his uh, background. But what I want to do before we get into that is to say, okay, well, why are we talking about tramadol? What is it about tramadol? So tramadol is a opiate analgesic for those out there that are not familiar with the, the medication. Um, besides the fact that it's very complex, and also a very unique opioid. It has a really interesting history that hopefully we'll get into with Dr. Gerlink, especially in how it's regulated within Canada and the U.S., but also around how it actually gets metabolized in our body and how everyone is going to respond to this drug in a different way. And it's not that it's uncommon with many types of medications that we use that sometimes people will react differently, but this is a very unique type of medication. But more importantly, I think why we need to pay attention to tramadol is because of some of those factors, like those historical factors that have caused it to be regulated very differently than other opiate analgesics uh, nationally and provincially, but also because of a trend that we're starting to see nationally. So the Canadian Institute for Health Information, or CHI-HI, released some really interesting data that I think all of us need to pay attention to. So in 2017, November, so at the end of uh, 2017, what they, what they reported was that overall, the amount of tablets, specifically opiate analgesics that were being prescribed in Canada, actually had been trending downward. Now, we can have a whole discussion on whether or not that's okay or not okay. But in general, there seemed to be this trend in a downward movement in terms of the number of pills that were out there. But what the trends were starting to see is that tramadol, uh, prescriptions had actually had gone up by 30%. So from 2012-2016, there was this trend of more tramadol getting out there. And in fact, tramadol is among the six opioids that account for more than 96% of all opiate prescriptions in Canada. So this is why I think we need to kind of dig a little bit deeper into tramadol and why I've asked Dr. Gerling to sort of be part of this discussion. He's got a really, really, really unique uh, background. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Gerling. So he is a staff internist and, and head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. He's also a medical uh, toxicologist at the Ontario Poison Centre and at the Hospital for Sick Kids. Uh, he's also a scientist at the Institute for Clinical Eva Evaluation Science. So he's got quite a quite a CV that uh, I'll just kind of go through and some of these other pieces as well. So what's interesting, and I think the coolest thing about it is that he began his medical career in Nova Scotia, and I just found out that he actually is from New Glasgow, which is about 40 minutes to the west of us, I believe. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, so he was uh, received a degree in pharmacy in 1990 at uh, Dalhousie University, and then in 1994, completed a medical degree uh, from Halifax. So his uh, postgraduate training is when he really transitioned over to that dark side. I'm just kidding. I, I have a lot of respect for people in Ontario. Don't get me wrong. So he uh, transitioned to his postgraduate training in internal medicine in 1998 in Toronto, uh, followed by a residency in clinical pharmacology and a fellowship in medical toxicology in 2002. 
He also has a PhD in clinical epidemiology, and all of these he received at the University of Toronto. So he is certified by, obviously, some Canadian boards of internal medicine, but also American boards as well, and in areas of internal medicine, emergency medicine, and clinical pharmacology. So at present, he is the site director at Sunnybrook for the program in clinical pharmacology and toxicology and is actively involved with the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons and subspecialty program in clinical pharmacology and toxicology. That was a lot of words. Uh, he's also a member of the Nucleus Committee and vice chair of the Examinations Committee. So this, this guy has got his hand in so many different things. So he really is someone that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. He's also has clinical and teaching as well as administrative activities and also maintains an active research program in the field of drug safety. His areas of particular interest include drug safety, adverse drug events, uh, also looking at the consequences of drug-drug interaction. So this is really important when we start looking at tramadol, especially in clinical practice. He also does study around suicide and deliberate, deliberate self-poisoning. So I want to welcome Dr. Gerlink. Can we claim you as a maritimer? I uh, grew up in New Glasgow. I uh, went to school at Dell for nine years. So I, I lived uh, in Nova Scotia for the first 25 years of my life. I, I, I go home uh, every opportunity, actually. It's so impressive. I'm just so impressed. So listen, just going through your CV, I, I, the first thing I said to myself is like, wow, this guy's got an extensive uh, uh, CV. How did you end up in this field? Like what brought you to those different uh, portfolios? Well, it's funny. I mean, I guess I started as a pharmacist um, uh, in high school. Uh, I, uh, I, for a while, thought I wanted to do music for a living, and then I realized I wasn't quite good enough to do that. <laughs> in fact, I almost went to St. Evex uh, for uh, oh. a jazz program. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, um, back in the 80s, you could go into pharmacy directly out of high school, and so I got into pharmacy, and uh, about halfway through it, I realized I really liked the uh, biological sciences, and I liked uh, sort of the you know, pharmacology generally. And uh, so then applied to medicine. I think I probably get in uh, on the, the skin of my teeth. Uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, the rest, I, I did internal medicine there. I sort of pretty clearly wanted to do internal medicine from, from yeah. day one. I wasn't surgically inclined. Uh, and throughout internal medicine, you know, I liked most things. I liked cardiology and ICU and I liked uh, infectious disease. Uh, but towards the end of my training, I... Um, I didn't. I realized I didn't like any one of those quite enough to do it for a living. And just pharmacology just presented itself, and it was a natural, um, a natural sort of uh, sort of thing to do after having been a pharmacist. And the toxicology part, the, the the management of acute poisonings, was one aspect that I really sort of fell in love with uh, early on. So yeah, yeah it's a, it's in hindsight, it's been a good sort of progression, and uh, uh, it's uh, you know could have gone. It could have gone any number of ways, I suppose. I could, I could, I could be a cardiologist right now, yeah. uh, making a lot more money. Uh, but I, I like what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and I think it's it's such a, a, a very specialized area. And uh, I know for most of us that work in, especially small communities, I mean, being able to reach out to someone that has an understanding of this complex area is just so important. So I, I first began to hear about you actually in, in some of the conferences that I went to and uh, some rumbling from, you know, some of uh, the pain specialist colleagues around your mm -hmm. views around opiates. And uh, and then I got to see you in the uh, the opiate summit that was held in Ottawa in 2016. And I started to really kind of realize that, you know, your approach was really one about safety and balance. And do, do you want to just comment on that? Because I think that's really important. There's a lot of mis perceptions about you're, you out there around your, your... Well, you're right. I mean, so I think, um, 
Uh, maybe just to go further back. So I was one of the docs who in the 2000s, in the early 2000s and, and, and mid 2000s, I was really liberal in how I used opioids for acute and chronic pain. I still have vivid recollections of admitting people. You know, I think of one guy in particular who had a sickle crisis and he was on two or 300 of morphine or equivalent, maybe more. And I, uh, you know, he would come in with a pain crisis and I thought the right thing to do is just to give mm -hmm. him more opioid. I've come to reconsider the use of opioids over the last decade or so, when you're critical of opioids or when you promote views of opioids that aren't favorable, which I've increasingly done over the last 10 years, um, after re-examining my own practice and, and immersing myself in the literature, you tend to get derided uh, as an anti-opioid zealot or somebody who, you know, somehow uh, isn't uh, doesn't have compassion or wants to take, um, uh, you know, a patient's pain medicines away, the sorts of medicines that are, you know, allowing them to lead productive lives. That's, of course, not anything a sensible doctor would want to do. But, but as I look back, you know, uh, to my practice um, in, let's say, 15 years ago, 2004, you know, here I was just throwing opioids at people as if the solution to ongoing pain despite high uses of opioids was just going to be more agonist, more, more, more mm. oxy or more yeah. hydromorphone. Yeah. And if I, as somebody who is trained as a pharmacist and then an internist and then a clinical pharmacologist and a toxicologist, if, if that was my approach, you know, it, uh, like I, you know, presumably somebody who hadn't spent as much time learning about drugs uh, would have, you know, would have, if I thought if anybody should know better in hindsight, it was me. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I've, uh, I still use opioids all the time. I, mean, I prescribe them. It's pretty much a daily thing for acute pain yeah. and certainly for end of life care. And I do use them for chronic pain, but I use them, I think, in a more thoughtful way than I, than I, I used to. But, but to your earlier comment, you know, when you, um, when you're critical of opioid prescribing, especially in the context of a, of a, of a, of a North American crisis where people are dying by the tens of thousands primarily not from prescription drugs, but from illicit fentanyl and that sort of thing, you, it's, it's very easy to become a target of people whose views don't align with yours. Yeah. I mean, it, and actually as an eMERGE physician, I mean, it was almost the same thing that we were really bad physicians because we weren't using more of OB analgesics in the patients that we were managing in the emergency room. And very quickly, you start to realize that there is a balance. There is a way to kind of look at these medications in a way that they are a very, very important tool that we can use in the toolbox, but they can't be the only tool. And that uh, sometimes it's, well, the way I always saw it is that sometimes we're the ones that can promote the habits and behaviors of our patients and not really help them manage the risk that's associated with that one tool. So yeah. I think it was really important to put that out there because I was I was quite impressed with your presentation at the Ottawa Summit and I it, it helped me do a 360 for sure. So believe it or not, this this uh, when I thought about this podcast, I thought about you, especially around tramadol because it's a, such a, a very unique medication, but it has some tremendous challenges that we need to to, to talk about. Um, so maybe what we can do, David, is just start. What is tramadol and and how does it work? So tramadol is an um, analgesic. It was uh, developed in the early 60s. And uh, unlike, say, morphine or codeine or oxycodone or hydromorph, uh, it's, it doesn't come from the opium poppy. It's completely synthetic. Uh, and, uh, and I guess the first point I should make is that tramadol can help some people. I mean, I'm, I've got fairly strongly held views about tramadol, but uh, I grant uh, you that, it, that in the right patient, it can, it can do 
what we want. Uh, and we can come to that maybe a little bit later. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's an unusual drug because tramadol itself is like an antidepressant. It sort of works and it looks structurally, looks like venlafaxine. Effects are very commonly mm-hmm. used serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. So, so tramadol itself is effectively an antidepressant, but it's converted in the liver um, to an opioid, a drug more like uh, morphine, for example. The, 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 the key, uh, so in fact, it's been promoted um, as mm-hmm. having two mechanisms of action for analgesia, the SNRI effect, the, the venlafaxine-like effect, and the opioid-like effect. And so it's been, I think that that sort of appeals to clinicians because we've, we're often trying to use multiple different modalities to, um, to treat pain. Uh, and, and so the idea that you get these in one pill, uh, is sort of superficially very appealing. One of the, I think one of the key problems with that concept though, is that the conversion of tramadol, the antidepressant to its opioid metabolite varies tremendously from person to person based mm-hmm. upon their genetic makeup and what other drugs they're on. And so uh, there's a lot of, one of my concerns with tramadol, uh, one of my concerns is that it's, it's, it's a messy drug. And when you start a patient on it, um, you really don't know whether you're giving them primarily the antidepressant or, uh, you know, a lot of opioid because you don't know what the genetic makeup is. Yeah, exactly. And this is, you'll often see, and I've been following some of the blogs and actually a blog that I saw that you were posting on as well. How, I, was, I was shocked how many uh, individuals out there actually promote it. And these are patients that are using it as an antidepressant. But in some ways, when you hear them describe what it does, it, it almost appears to me, and maybe I'm wrong about this, because you could also bring in the, the, the agonist component as well, is that they are getting that energy boost or that euphoria that sometimes we see with other types of opiate analgesics like uh, oxycodone. And so can it be uh, a bit confusing in terms of the, the, the effect that you're starting? I know it can increase serotonin, but could it also be that boost that you see sometimes with opiate analgesics in terms of how it stimulates that part of the brain that gives you that energy? Oh, yeah. So, so um, you know, that, that, the conversion of tramadol to the opioid uh, metabolite, yeah. uh, as I said, varies. 7% of people in North America can't, we don't have the genetic machinery to do that. You won't get any opioid effect. Um, but in those, in, in the majority of people who do, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll experience the beneficial effects of opioids early on. And so it wouldn't be surprising if someone took tramadol and said, you know, I feel good. I mean, I feel I have this kind of a bit of a lift, yeah. uh, maybe yeah. a bit more energy than I otherwise would have had. It also wouldn't be surprising to give it to someone and hear them uh, describe just being really, really tired. So, so there's a lot of, you know, you don't really know until you've given a drug to someone how they're going to respond to it. But, but the anecdote you described about people feeling a bit of a lift uh, or even feeling more energy is certainly well, well described. And I think it's an important thing to bring in the conversation because when I'm trying to, myself personally, when I'm trying to manage risk for the, like even, even sort of coming back to helping patients understand how they're using the pharmacology. And one of the things that I love to ask them is that how does, besides helping you with your pain, does it do anything else for you? And this is when they'll start talking about the energy piece. And I do think it's important to kind of bring that into the, the conversation because especially if they're, and this is another question I, I will ask you because um, just in terms of the forms that it comes into, like short acting versus long acting. So just to, if you could kind of expand a little bit about that and then we'll come back to what uh, my concern is around how sometimes 
we see in the uh, pain population, which is a little bit different than the palliative care population, is that there tends to be more of a focus on using the short-acting versus the long-acting. My thinking has changed a lot around the use of short-acting versus long-acting. I remember being taught, and I've taught myself for a long time, that, um, that when patients had chronic pain, the right thing to do was to preferentially use a long-acting product, whether it was whether it was an extended-release tramadol or uh, why well, would use tramadol, but you know oxycontin or hydromorphone would be sort of the classic examples. Uh, and the rationale there was, I think, mostly twofold. You know, one, it was more convenient to take two pills a day or you know two doses a day, setting aside breakthrough, uh, than it was to say take four a day. It was in patients who were less likely to forget uh, to take, and it was just easier to remember to take uh, the two a day. And the other rationale was that it was easier to stay on top of the pain than to get behind and have to take additional doses. And this is what I was taught in pharmacy and in medicine. And um, I think, uh, uh, in hindsight, I think that was bad advice. And I preferentially now, when I uh, can, will use immediate release formulations. Um, in fact, I, I think it's, it generally makes more sense to use immediate release formulations. And, and the reason gets pretty deep into the pharmacology of these things and to what we're trying to accomplish more generally with, with opioids and, 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 and pain medicine. The concern I have with long-acting preparations, other than the fact that, they, that they, um, it's very easy to find yourself you know, taking hundreds of, find your patient taking hundreds of milligrams of morphine or equivalent per day, because you know, like, just to get off tramadol for a second, think of OxyContin. I mean, there's a drug that lives in an 80 milligram tablet. In fact, at one point, it was in a, there was a 160 milligram Oxy tablet was mm. briefly on the market. And, you know, if you're taking that as directed, you're taking Oxy 80 twice a day, um, you're taking 160 of Oxy or somewhere in the vicinity of 250 to 300 of, of morphine. morphine that, yeah. it, when you get to doses like that, it is generally the case. And this is something that people push back on a lot, but I'm quite happy to defend it. It is generally the case that the patient is being harmed more than helped by the therapy. Uh, and we, maybe that maybe we, I'll leave that avenue open and we can come back to it a little bit later. But, but one of the reasons why I prefer to use immediate release formulations is because I think we don't, clinicians and patients alike, don't pay enough attention to or don't recognize dependence, mm. uh, opioid dependence. And it's distinct from addiction, but they don't, we don't recognize dependence quite as the harm, it's quite the harm we should. And I think that when your body is constantly exposed, let's use fentanyl patches as an example. When you're constantly exposed to a mu agonist like fentanyl, that has tangible negative effects on a person uh, and their physiology. Uh, And I think our bodies need a little bit of a breather, so to speak, from, from opioids from time to time to uh, uh, but again, I'm getting really deep into the weeds here and I've only scratched yeah. the surface of the weeds. So maybe we want to unpack it a bit more before I just keep rambling. Well, you know, it, but the other piece that I look at, especially this is where we can kind of look at this a little bit differently, but one of the challenges I find, so do you have a particular time frame that you look at in terms of how long you leave somebody on a short acting opioid? Would that be part of that discussion rather than seeing them switched over to long acting? Or do you see long or short acting, uh, more, uh, as a long-term strategy for, uh, well, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see the, I don't see the compelling argument against short-term okay. against immediate release opioids. And I think, you know, I think I'm skirting around the issues. Maybe I can just spend a few minutes unpacking what I'm really getting at here okay. with this, yeah. with my concerns about dependence. 
So when we talk about dependence, and I don't mean dependence like I'm dependent on my insulin to live. I don't mean right. I, I don't mean uh, dependence in that sense. I mean that the dependence that arises from taking uh, certain classes of drugs like opioids, like benzodiazepines, like antidepressants, uh, many of them. Uh, and by, I mean um, the physiologic adaptations that happen in our neural circuitry when we take these drugs. And it's defined by, dependence to me, I think of it in the pharmacologic sense, is defined by the development of withdrawal symptoms mm-hmm. when the drug is taken away. Yeah. Alcohol, I mean, alcohol is a good example. I mean, yeah. someone who drinks 20 ounces of vodka mm-hmm. a day mm-hmm. and doesn't get access to it is going to go into withdrawal. Well, that same thing happens to a chronic pain patient who is doing exactly what his or her doctor said and isn't taking extra doses and isn't crushing their tablets and you know isn't injecting them. They're just doing what their doctor told them to do. I, I don't think, whether this is tramadol or oxycodone or fentanyl, I don't think we view that dependence as, uh, as a harm as much as we should. It really is a tangible harm. Let me give you a scenario, okay? So a patient who is dependent, who has been, just say for argument's sake, they've been um, taking an opioid, any opioid, for a year. They've been taking it for chronic back pain. And let's say they've, they've landed on a dose somewhere in the 100 milligrams of morphine or equivalent range. Not spectacularly high, but their body's become accustomed to the presence of the drug. And if they were to stop taking the drug, they would get sick. Uh, they'd go to withdrawal. Uh, some, and, and I've been struck by how withdrawal seems to affect different people differently. Some people will be doubled over with, you know, abdominal pain and goosebumps and diarrhea, and they just feel miserable. They feel really, really awful. Some people seem to have uh, insomnia as the primary uh, manifestation. Some people uh, just get this crushing depression and, you know, uh, or a horrible, you know, an inability, an inability to function. They cannot get out of bed. So you can see, and, and some people get pain. This is the other really important thing that I think is 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 grossly mis uh, underrecognized by doctors and patients alike is the emergence of pain, not from the underlying disease process, but as a manifestation of opioid withdrawal. Yeah, um, this is well well described, and so you can see how a totally uh, a patient who is following the rules and is the sort of the prototypical legitimate pain patient who is doing what their doctor says and just taking the opioids um, as prescribed, no hint, not a whiff of opioid use disorder. And they are adamant that the drug is helping them and they need it to continue functioning. If they didn't have access to it, they would be, they would be suicidal, they would be you know, debilitated. All of that stuff makes complete sense. But what I think we sometimes fail to recognize is that that ongoing need is to no small extent the result of having taken the drug, right? Yes, um, yeah. and, uh, and, and the higher the dose is, you know, to the extent that people escalate their opioid doses to 200 or 300 or 400 or higher milligrams of morphine a day, that's going to intensify. You know, setting aside the fact that the reason we escalate doses is the failure of lower doses in the first place, but, but dependence is going to intensify and the ongoing need for the drug is going to be that much greater, but it's not because the drug is helping the person. The, the, the this is a dependence is a good example of a harm, and it is unequivocally a harm because if it it happens because you were on the drug, and it and it manifests as all these as this misery and pain and insomnia and whatnot when you stop it, and it goes away when you resume it. It looks for all the world so, like an effective an, a drug that is continuing to be effective and helping the person. But what it's really doing is uh, is 
preventing the emergence of withdrawal and the, and the pain and all the other symptoms that come along with that. So I think we don't view opioids, um, I don't think we view dependence as, as and this can, dependence can happen within a couple of days. I mean, we, I, I mean it's amazing. I, I didn't know this yeah. until just a few years ago. Um, so uh, it's a long-winded way of, uh, of making the point that dependence is a, I think it's the most pernicious of all of the harms of opioids, whether it's tramadol or oxycodone or fentanyl or what have you. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is necessarily a greater problem at higher doses. And it's just the case that it happens as a result of stimulating the receptor. So back to your question of five minutes ago, um, the reason I prefer to use immediate release opioids when I can, as opposed to extended release opioids, is because I think there is, and it's tough to get your head around it, and it's the sort of thing that people might not want to hear, but there's something to be gained from not constantly exposing your opioid receptors to drug. And that main gain is you, you're less prone to develop uh, dependence. Does that make sense? Well, it, it does in some ways, David. But the, the question for me is that the majority of patients that we see in clinical practice, though, are still using these short-acting uh, opioids on a, on a daily basis. Like if you're saying to that patient, you know, you can use, you know, uh, you know oxycodone, uh, you know, 40 milligrams, uh, you know, every whatever, they're going to do that. And so the couple of things that I find in clinical practice, and we can kind of talk about this and debate back and forth, is that what I find often happens around how we, you know, make recommendations around short acting to our patients is that uh, we try and get them to use it just as they need it, but these patients are using them on a regular basis. But what it starts to do when we say use it as you need it, it starts to keep the patient with persistent pain more pain-focused. So they're planning around because we've limited the amount of, of a tablets that they have access to. So they're trying to plan around their chronic pain flare-ups. So in some ways, they're becoming a little bit more pain-focused and planning around this medication. Um, So as someone who's using short-acting on a regular basis, uh, are we giving them the drug holiday that you're you're suggesting? Or is this drug holidays that we... No, no, we're not. So I think that... So if someone is taking their immediate release oxycodone four times a day or more frequently, um, we're, we're not doing that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but we're also not doing it when we're giving them Oxycontin twice a day. Yes, exactly. Uh, so I think yeah. I think what we should be doing is encouraging them to uh, try and space out the drugs as much as we can. Yeah. And, and I think this is where um, I can't overstate the importance of this. We have to, um, in, in the early days of opioid therapy, um, w- when, when your drug wears off and you feel pain, it's probably from the underlying disease process. It's from your bad disc or your hip or your back or whatever. Um, but after weeks and months of opioid therapy, yeah. when the drug wears off, the pain that one feels, yes. while it might be at the site of the disease, is necessarily going to be in part, uh, in part, from a manifestation of withdrawal. Like yes. there's there's good data to support that. It's not something people want to hear. They they yeah. don't want. Nobody mm. wants to entertain the possibility that their pain might be in, to some extent, because of the therapy that seems to be helping them. It's a, it's a deeply unwelcome claim yeah. for and I, many patients yeah. with chronic pain. But, 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 but to, yeah, this is why I think that we should try to, if you're going to use immediate release oxy, use it twice a day. Yeah. So this is, this is where, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but this is where it becomes really important too, because what I often will find, especially uh, patients who are, have been on these short acting for a long period of time, 
where you often see the benzo get added in is at nighttime because what the, so if we're not paying attention to the opiate-induced withdrawal, right? So this is such an important thing that you're bringing up because it is such an important thing that we don't think about is that that patient is going to come back to you and say, look, I cannot sleep. My pain is worse. I feel more anxious, you know, or whatever the motivation is that, you know, that we know that they're using it for pain, but if they're getting that sort of other types of effects from that medication is that they're going to start to feel unwell when they're starting to go through that withdrawal is that that's where the benzo often gets added in. So it's such an important uh, point to be kind of putting out there that we need to be more aware of how we bring benzos into this equation, right? Well, you're describing a very sort of a a nefarious prescribing cascade. I mean, and the doctor in both of those instances, whether it's pain or sleep, we are trying to help the patient. We're trying to relieve one sort of suffering or another, one one physical suffering or can't sleep, insomnia, that's another form of suffering. And I think this is another point to make. When we, if you, if you sort of go to 35,000 feet and you say, what am I trying to accomplish with this pain medicine, with mm. this sleeping? I ask this to my residents all the time. They will have somebody, let's just take a, a patient who's 80 year old with a acute lumbar radiculopathy, they have a brutal pain, they're in the emergency department and the resident wants to give some hydromorphone because they've been taught that NSAIDs are too dangerous for old patients and so we should give them some hydromorphone. I say, what are you trying to accomplish? Mm. And they'll say, well, I'm trying to re- re- improve the patient's pain. And I'll say, okay, good, that's part of the goal. What else are you trying to do? And they'll say, well, I'm trying to improve their ambulation, I'm trying to uh, improve their quality of life, I'm trying to shorten their hospital stay. And, uh, and we tend to, doctors and patients especially, we tend to focus on the benefits and we sometimes lose fat, we lose sight Mm. of the fact that all drugs have side effects and very sleeping pill or a blood pressure, any, any medication. We are always trying to afford the patient more benefits than harms. This just makes, it's so, it's, it's the sort of statement that is so obvious it shouldn't even have to be said. Yeah. But with opioids and benzos too, it, it, it's really important to look at it that way because to the extent that dependence develops and to the extent that ongoing use of the drug keeps the withdrawal symptoms away. You can see how you can very quickly, um, over the span of days or weeks even, as certainly at higher doses, getting into this situation where it looks for all the world like the benefits of therapy are exceeding the harms when, you know, but when, when in fact you're actually harming the patient by, you know, when, let me put it this way, when the avoidance of withdrawal and the withdrawal pain, the withdrawal insomnia, and so on. When the avoidance of withdrawal uh, masquerades as benefit, we are we are in trouble. Yeah. And there have been millions of patients across North America over the last two decades that, do- that well-intentioned doctors like me have harmed in that way. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So so yeah, I mean it it, it all goes. I mean, this is like we keep coming back to withdrawal as a manifestation of dependence, which is a predictable consequence of being on opioids. Yeah. This is something I never really thought about, you know, yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's something I think we, we need to pay more attention to. Yeah. The other thing that I think is really important that you're bringing out there is we have to step back and also look at our goals of care, right? So I, for me, two things are really important. How do I manage how do I manage risk? Um, and also, what are the goals of care? So if I am, so we need to know the type of pain that we're managing. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm, and I've always felt that when we look at acute pain and chronic pain, they really are function management. They're not about pain management. Pain is important, but the reduction in pain that I want to see is going to be very different than if I'm managing acute and chronic, whereas the end of life is going to be very, very different. 
you right. know, and, and then, then you have to have that conversation. So I always say, you know, your goal with your chronic pain patient is, you know, maybe a 30, 40% reduction improvement in pain, but avoid sedation. So sedation is another piece because we're so focused on the pain piece that we medicate to that point of sedation because most of these, this pharmacology affects how patients process and think yep. and puts them in that fog. So we're going to stop there and uh, pick this up again next week. What we're going to do is get into more about how tramadol is regulated in Canada and what makes it so unique from other opioids. So we'll stop there and pick it up next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.